Well, good morning, Antioch. If you came in late, uh, Ken didn't age 35 years. My name's Ed Underwood. I'm, uh, I'm from Southern California, and I love preaching at, uh, at Antioch. It's a privilege to be with you today. I'm especially uh, excited that today I get to do what I hardly ever get to do when I speak somewhere. Uh, Ken has privileged me, and he's invited me to uh, just join in on the series. Typically, when I go somewhere to speak, I'm uh, doing something that I've done five or six times, and I, you know, you try to keep it fresh, blow the dust off of it, get some passion, God, please. Um, and uh, it's, uh, but this is something, uh, this is cool for me, because I get to really be a part of the life here. And uh, I've been uh, studying these passages, and, and uh, I, I hope I give some notes for you. you know, hopefully you won't read those while I'm talking. They're just there for, and, and, and I know they're massive, and you're probably thinking, good night, is he going to cover all that? No, I'm not. I'm going to uh, I, discover a, a small part of it. So uh, it's uh, on the church at Smyrna. If you'll open your Bible, if you have your Bible, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the church at uh, Smyrna. That's where we'll hang out. I'd like to pray for you before we uh, get into it and pray for me and uh, just ask God to, to do something, if you would. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for the, the privilege of preaching your word. Thank you, Father, for this church, and I want to pray, Lord, that um, I I think it's true that you always have something in mind when a community gathers around your word, and and I'm asking, Lord, that we would join in with that, and and, um, part of what your Holy Spirit had in mind when you inspired John to write the revelation um, would, uh, would be communicated to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, when I travel around, I, uh, I was just driving. I was at Cannon Beach last week teaching at Ecola Bible School. And uh, when I travel around, I'm, I'm doing two mental exercises as I'm driving. First, being an old fireman, uh, I spent eight years, much younger than this, uh, fighting fire for the U.S. Forest Service. And this just drives my wife, Judy, nuts. I'm always fighting fire. Like I'm driving along, I was driving over Mount Hood and I was thinking, you know, if a fire started there, I wonder where we would put the line. Maybe we'd put it there. And then I'm, I'm horrible if there's a burn because I'm going along and, I, and Judy just goes, when we drive by a burn, we got a lot of them in Southern California, uh, when we drive by a burn, Judy says, Eddie, this fire has already been fought. You don't have to fight it because I'm always, I wonder why they put the line there. I wouldn't have put it there. Well, no wonder it burned over uh, so it, that's one thing I do. The other thing I do is that I drive by churches. And as a pastor, and I've been a pastor for, for decades, as a pastor I drive by churches and I do this evaluation from my perspective. I, on the way back from Cannon Beach, there's this little bitty Bible church and it's off to the side and it's got blackberries growing all around it. And I always say to myself, oh, good night. I hate to pastor that church. Uh, wonder what, and you just picture some guy just getting a snot slapped out of him in that church by, uh, you know, entitled families. That's the way I have it pictured. And then other churches you drive by, you think, I bet that would be a good one. 
Uh, I bet that guy's doing okay. Well, I found, <laughs> in fact, he, that might be all right. What I found was this last time, I didn't do that. I, did it, I, 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 I caught myself because of what I read about the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. Uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are coming to the second church. And I'm thinking about uh, what, uh, what the couriers. So here's the background, and, and Ken got into this last, the background to the book of Revelation is that as you read through the book of Acts and you read the earlier epistles, the book of Galatians, um, even the, the book of 1 Corinthians, these earlier epistles, that there was this expectation that Jesus was going to return and establish his kingdom on earth right away because he told his disciples he would. And then he didn't. And then he didn't. He didn't show up. And life got very, very hard very, very quickly. They were under the domination of Rome. Uh, the, the churches were suffering. And uh, so John, the, the, the bishop, the apostle John, the bishop of Ephesus, is coming under this persecution. And he's exiled. And, and God gives him, Jesus gives him the revelation which says, I'm still here, I'm going to win. So chapters 4 through 22, chapter 1, I'm still here. Chapters 4 through 22, I'm going to win, and this is how I'm going to win. But chapters 2 and 3, the until then part. Until then, until then, so the entire book of Revelation uh, is sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And I'm thinking about these guys going on this tour. The courier, whoever he sent it with, the courier is going to each of these seven churches. Going to each of these seven churches. And I'm sure along the way, they're evaluating every church. The church of Ephesus, you studied last week, the church of Ephesus would be in every way like the church I pastor in Southern California. Church of the Open Door is an historic evangelical Bible teaching church. It has, think of Ephesus, planted by Paul, grown out of the school of Tyrannus, sent missionaries throughout the New Testament world, Epaphras, who planted the church at Colossae, came from Ephesus, from the school of Tyrannus. Now the apostle John had these great Bible teachers, a great history to be proud of. So I would think that as the couriers are taking this message to the churches, just maybe I don't know if they read it or not, they were probably thinking, went by Ephesus and they thought, man, that'd be a good church to be a part of. That's a historic church. They make the circle. They come on over to the church of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea wasn't as much an historic church as it was the happening church. It was the happening church in, the, in, the, in Asia Minor. In fact, later on when you study it, you're, gonna, you're going to see it had come out of the church at Colossae, and it was, it was very wealthy. 
And Jesus would, will say to them, you all, you think you're wealthy, not only physically wealthy, but spiritually wealthy. Well, you're really not because you're not getting your juice from me. It'd be a paraphrase of uh, Jesus' message to Laodicea. Now, Laodicea reminds me of, I don't know what it's like up here, but a lot of the churches in SoCal, and I'm thinking like primarily some of those Orange County churches. It's interesting to me. I keep up with a lot of young people because I taught to, at Biola, and we have another, uh, Azusa Pacific is right down the road. So I keep up with a lot of the college-age types. And um, about every nine months, I'll say to them, where are you going to church? And they're saying, we're going to the hip church of whatever's happening now, right now. This is the place, and it's called the go-getter church or whatever. And they're all going there. And then another church springs up, and they're under this delusion that they're growing the kingdom of God. No, they're not. It's just the same people. It's the same people. They're just swapping sheep. So you got all these people who used to go here. It's the hippest thing going on, and now it's not hip. It's not comfortable anymore. Now we're going here. So I'm sure, I'm sure that the courier is going around and says, man, Laodicea, this would be a nice place. It's like San Clemente. I, I think I could plan it. I'm called here. San Clemente, me and Jesus in San Clemente. But nobody, and I mean nobody, wanted to be a part of the church at Smyrna because the church at Smyrna had a different kind of reputation. The history of Smyrna, it's about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Uh, Smyrna was the, it was called uh, the crown of Asia Minor. It was a place where uh, all the wealthy people wanted to live, but no Christian wanted to live there. This is why. Smyrna was the center. It was the Asian center of the Caesar cult. The Asian center of the Caesar cult. And the Caesar cult, those were the Romans who were actually buying into all the religious stuff that the Romans used to explain why they were powerful. So as they oppressed people, they would have a Caesar cult. We would think of it today kind of like Gestapo. Kind of like Gestapo. And they were very much, their, their economy and uh, their well-being was tied to the uh, the, the favor of Rome. They had been Roman supporters for over 200 years, even before Rome was a great, na- a great nation. Back in the early days of Rome, the people of Smyrna had, um, had uh, let the Romans borrow their navy. And this is how close they were. And so the Christians, of course, come in sideways to all of that, and the Christians were being persecuted in Smyrna. There was also a synagogue there that was especially a Jewish synagogue in Smyrna, probably for the same reasons that was especially opposed to the Christians. So if you were walking around this path, you would think, this is a place that I, this is a church I wouldn't be a part of. And as I was driving around, driving through Cannon Beach up over Mount Hood, I was thinking, wow, what it looks like on the outside and its reputation among Christians could be the exact opposite of what Jesus thinks about it. Because to the church at Smyrna, only the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia are the only two that Jesus doesn't rebuke. 
the church at Philadelphia, he doesn't rebuke him. And he says, this is what I, this is what I dig about you, is you. You just love people. The church at Smyrna, he says, this is what I love about you. That in, in spite of the suffering, you are still loving me and serving me. So I just want to give you an overview to the suffering church, give you an overview of how it lays out, and then I'm going to read it. Absolute God's solemn words, absolute God's solemn words. It's to the church at Smyrna. Absolute God's solemn words. Make sure that they connect the fact that Jesus is absolute God. Um, I know what you're going through. Do not fear. Do not fear. And then these promises, promises that they would have the fullest experience of eternal life and that the second death will not harm them. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And I'm reading from the Net Bible. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who was the first and the last, the one who was dead but came to life. I know the distress you are suffering and your poverty. Interesting, the opposite of Laodicea. You think you're rich, you're poor. Jesus says, I know of your oppression and your poverty, but you are rich. So he's evaluating what's going on in their hearts, not six flags over Jesus' propaganda. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so you may be tested, and you will experience suffering for 10 days. Remain faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life itself. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. He begins uh, by introducing himself as absolute God. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who is first and the last, the one who, who was dead but came to life. Couldn't be any better than to already have Colossians 1, 15 through 20 read. That's the point of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that Jesus is the, the Lord of creation and also the Lord of the church. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe and of creation that he loves, and he is also the creator and sustainer of a whole new type of life called resurrection life. He's Lord of creation, Lord of the church. He's the first and the last. He was here before creation. He created it, and he will be here forever. This is who is speaking. He's also uh, the one who was dead but came to life. And this is reminding them of all the truth of Jesus' life and his great and massive work and exactly what, you, what was reported before. Never underestimate the power of Jesus' work on the cross. He not only was reconciling sinners to God, he was reconciling creation to God with his mighty work. And I love the imagery 
uh, in uh, John when, uh, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says, I'm the one who descended and I'm the one as Moses lifted up the serpent. I'm the one that's going to be lifted up. But there's a wordplay. John is just a genius in the, in the Greek and there's a wordplay and it has this picture of an unstoppable work of God that uh, it'd be like taking a hundred pound uh, like kettlebell and just pulling it off the shelf. And once that thing started whipping down, you had no choice but to go back up with it. That once God launched uh, this great work of redemption, of, uh, of rescuing creation, that, that the one from heaven descended and it hits the low point in the garden, uh, then he's lifted up on the cross to make payment for sin. Then he's resurrected to new life and then he ascends to the Father. And there's this idea that it just can't be stopped. So John's bringing all this, hey, he's, Jesus said, remember me, I'm still here. But until I show up in person, I want you to know how I'm showing up now. So this is, uh, this is his introduction to them. God's absolute solemn words, I know what you're going through, do not fear. I know. I know. And the no isn't Jesus saying, you know, um, I mean, it is, of course, he's watching. It is Jesus saying, I'm watching, I'm aware of what's going on. But this is, I know, it's experiential knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. I remember the crisis of faith. I had many crises of faith when I was suffering from this disease that I have. Because when it manifests, it's just a vicious, vicious disease. The number one reason for death with this disease is suicide. So I remember once in 2000 when, when I was being diagnosed, and anybody here who's ever been diagnosed with leukemia or cancer, you know there's this thing where you're just getting sicker and sicker and they, they can't figure out what's wrong. And I was really in the middle of that. And, and my skin, when this thing manifests, my skin won't stay on. So uh, I, I, I thought I, we thought I was getting better. And, and there was this, I hadn't been to church in about three months, and I missed my community and I missed everybody and I, because I couldn't wear clothes. My feet were so swollen I couldn't get on shoes. And, and I started getting better. And we had a guest speaker this Sunday at Church, of, at Church of the Open Door. And he was one of my heroes, a hero of the faith, a man who had taught me at Dallas Seminary. And I remember thinking, this is going to, I told Judas, I'm so Saturday night, so I'm so looking forward to tomorrow. I get to go back. I get to be at church. You know, it's going to be so cool. And I finally get to be with people. I get to meet this professor again, and that morning I got up, and I had, uh, it just, my body went south again, and it was, I just couldn't go to church, and, and uh, I, I, I just sat there, I said to Judy, go ahead, I just sat there and cried, and, and I remember thinking, Jesus, you just don't know how this feels, and then I know that I heard him say, yeah, I do, turn to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, for we do not have, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been taught, who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. And for so many years, 
I had, uh, I had viewed that as a prayer thing. And it was, it was as if, you know, Jesus, and it's true, Jesus, um, Jesus was inviting me to this throne of grace, but that I know, that's experiential knowledge. And, and what it's speaking of is there is no threshold of pain. Not, like Jesus' skin didn't fall off. When I get to heaven, Job and I are going to have some, you know, we're going to talk about that. But, uh, but Jesus had experienced, it helped me to know that he had experienced the threshold of pain, the threshold of disappointment that I was experiencing right then. Uh, he, I say goodbye to my bride and I can't go to church. He said goodbye to his mother and his best friend from a cruel Roman cross. He gets it. He gets it. He, he knows. He knows what it feels like to be me uh, and to suffer. Jesus' love is never more powerful than when life hurts the most. This is what he's trying to get across to the church at Smyrna. I know you don't look like the big deal church. I just want you to know I understand what you're going through and I appreciate it and I know what it feels like uh, to be you. One of the uh, insights I got from um, going through and sitting in these cancer waiting rooms, I have a really sweet oncologist. Her name is Ann Moorbacher. And I got to know her, obviously. You get to know your oncologist really well. And I was walking along the, the halls at uh, North Cancer Center there at University of Southern California. And I said to her, I said, uh, Dr. Moorbacher, what's the hardest thing What's the hardest thing about your job? And she said, Westerners don't think they should die. Westerners don't think they should die. We don't think we should get sick. If we get sick and if we die, if pain comes into our life, in fact, we spend most of our time trying to avoid pain. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, in his uh, book, Letters to Mark, says this. The cross isn't just a beautiful piece of art decorating the living rooms. It is the sign of the most radical transformation in our manner of thinking, feeling, and living. Jesus' death on the cross has changed everything. What is the most spontaneous human response to suffering and death? The words that spring immediately to my mind are these, preventing, avoiding, denying, shunning, keeping clear of, and ignoring. All of these words indicate that suffering and death don't fit into our program for living. We react to them as uninvited, undesirable, and unwelcome interlopers. If we get sick, our primary concern is to get better as quickly as possible. If that doesn't happen, then we try to persuade others or each other, that it may not be as bad as it is. You find this when you have cancer. People, uh, here's what I find, uh, what I find with people is, uh, like I was just, uh, when I was at Ecola, and, and the students were praying for me, and they said, what's it like? And I'll say, uh, well, you know, here's a lesion right here. And they'll immediately look at a pimple and go, What's that? I got one. So what I found about people want to know about your disease until they figured out that they don't have it. And once they figure out that they don't have it, it's like, whoo, man, good. Oh, Ed, uh, that's, yeah, yeah, ooh. But there's someone who does care about my disease, and his name is Jesus. 
the two times that this disease has gotten really bad, I, I didn't have this resource. Now I have a new resource. And, and I think about it a lot. I, uh, I'm interested in all sorts of skin problems because I have, have them. And, and um, I started reading about St. Anthony's fire. And I thought, where does that come from, St. Anthony's fire? And sure enough, it comes from an order of, of, of monks, the order of St. Anthony, the Antonine monks. And they have, especially during the Dark Ages, they devoted themselves to caring for people who had uh, skin problems that would make them unacceptable. And I know for sure, when you have a skin problem, it's like, you know, you, you sit down next to somebody and they look at you and go, hi, how are you? I notice your skin is falling off. Wow. Oh, yeah, sure, have a seat. And that's when yeah, my skin was falling off. People, when I finally came back to preaching, they said, don't swing your arms anymore. It's distracting. Because the reason was I'd swing my arms and skin would go, whoo. But these monks, uh, they took care of these people. And then I, I researched a little more, and I um, found out that in their, in their, they had a monastery, they had a, like a church, a community, in Isingheim. It's now in France, but it's more Germanic. And uh, during the Black Plague, when everybody else was running to the hills and trying to stay away from it, both the Christian and the Muslim doctors were saying the only way to avoid this would be to go to the mountains. So, of course, all the wealthy people went to the mountains and the poor stayed and suffered and died. And no one would stay with them except for the Christians. The Christians, the Antonine monks, stayed with them. And there was one artist, a brilliant artist, who was so taken by these monks that he asked him if he could put a, a mural up on the front of that, uh, of that monastery. And he did. It's one of the greatest works. Uh, his name was Matthias Grunewald. And it's a picture of Jesus on the cross. Look at this. He's got the plague. I, I just love that. Now you might, I mean, to me, that's Jesus knowing. I, I have this picture now. And the next time this disease manifests, and it will, and it's probably what I'll die of, I'm going to think, I'm going to look at that and say, Jesus, you get it. Isn't it just moving to think that while everybody else was abandoning these poor people and they were dying this, this horrible, horrible, horrible death, in the name of Christ, these monks were risking death. And for hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, who were dying of the Black Plague, the last thing they saw was that. What, what, a, what hope we have in Jesus. Uh, he, he, he knows what it feels like to be me. Uh, wow. Jesus goes on and says to them, uh, do not fear. Do not fear. The fullest experience of eternal life Second death will not harm you. This is the solemn pronouncement. I know the distress you are suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. By the way, just a side note, it's in your notes. This is not any type of, uh, 
a validation of anti-Semitism. What he's saying is that these were joining, these Jews in this synagogue only were joining with the, Christian, with the non-Christians of Smyrna to, pers- to persecute the Christians. Um, do not be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so you may be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. And sure enough, this happened. It's interesting how Jesus brings the devil into this. And, and uh, my view is I think the evil in the world is very personal. I think there's a person behind it. It's interesting to me when I talk, and his name is Satan. I had a, an, a, have an emerging leaders class, and we brought this guy in who was a, uh, had been a, a missionary to different groups of people and had, had built places and, and drilled wells on the northern frontier of Kenya with these tribal groups and had poured himself in, had done animal husbandry, had showed them uh, how to better their flocks and how to grow, what would grow there. And, and I visited him on the field, and he's got these, these huge communities that are just thriving because of, because of what he's done in the name of Christ. Uh, and he came to, to Church of the Open Door, and I had these 11 guys that are in this group that we call the Emerging Leaders. And I said to him, his name's Dilly Anderson, I said, Dilly, from all your years on the mission field, what would you like to tell this generation? And as he's more African than he is uh, Westerner now, so he just started telling stories because that's what they do in Africa. He just started telling stories. And they were all stories of demonic oppression. And these guys, their eyes are like this and their hair is curled. And and, uh, he finished and smiled and he said, "Uh, gentlemen, the devil is real. So you, you see wickedness in the third world that's unmasked. And... uh, so Jesus gets that too. And he wants, to know, wants him to know that, uh, he's gonna, that there'll be a fuller expression, a fuller experience of eternal life. Remain faithful even to the point of death. The 10 days, I think it's a Hebrewism. It's hard to say that it was a literal 24-hour days. I think it's a Hebrewism. And 10 in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew literature, was a sign of fullness. Uh, Jesus is warning them and he's saying, here's what's coming. There's going to be a lot of persecution. But here's what I want you to remember, that if you, if you will remain faithful, then um, I will give you a fuller experience of eternal life. Uh, Colossians 1.24, if you could just turn in your Bibles back to Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24, Paul is speaking of his great privilege to suffer for Jesus. And he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my physical body, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's an interesting way he puts it. Jesus speaks of the cup of suffering in the garden, speaking of his own suffering. And Jesus speaks of the cup that the two disciples who wanted to be great in his kingdom, James and John, would have to drink of if they wanted to be great in his kingdom. And then Paul adds to that, and Paul says, uh, what I'm doing, he sees his suffering as being assigned by God. He sees his suffering as being assigned by God. 
He said, now Jesus started the whole thing by suffering, and we can't suffer for the sins of the world, but during the church age, for the church to do its redemptive work against the forces of evil. Acts 26, when Jesus commissions Paul, he says, I want you to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of the living God. So for that to happen, we as a church are joining in. And those who want to serve Christ, we have to realize that there is a cup to drink and it's a cup of suffering. When life seems too hard and we don't think we can go on, we need to have a category for suffering. It might have a whole lot to do with serving Jesus Christ. And he says the crown of life. I believe the crown of life is a, um, I will give you the crown of life. He who conquers the overcomer will in no way be harmed by the second death. I believe the crown of life, the crown consisting of life, is speaking of, and many scriptures speak of this, of a richer experience of eternal life. Eternal life is free, and it is given to us when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in him as our Savior. But the experience that we have of eternal life is dependent upon our faithfulness to Christ. More faithfulness to Christ, greater experience of the power and the presence of God in our life. The greater experience of being used by him. When he says the second death cannot touch you, uh, there is physical death, which is separation from physical life. And he says that's what's going to happen with the persecution. And it happened to many of them. But the second death, separated from the life of God, absolutely, ume, the two negatives in the Greek text, absolutely will not happen to you. And I think it's litotes, which means that he's using this to say, not only will it not touch you, like we say to our kids, uh, that's not going to happen. What we mean by that is, stop what you're doing, it's absolutely not going to happen. And I think what what John, or Jesus is saying through John is that it so, should be so far removed from the person who is suffering to be afraid of death because there's no way that your experience of eternal life will be diminished here on earth and in uh, the world to come. Interesting, this persecution. When the letter went to Smyrna, and the courier took it to Smyrna, to this suffering church. So what we know is uh, we shouldn't be evaluating churches by what it looks like on the outside. Jesus is evaluating churches not by the scope of their reputation, but by the depth of their suffering for Christ. And that's what he's appreciating. Because if they're suffering for Christ, they're, get, they're doing something. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, you cannot serve Christ and avoid persecution. The two come together, they go together. Anyway, there was, a, there was a teenager in the audience. I mean, a teenager who was there when the, the letter to Smyrna was first read. And he stayed in Smyrna. He didn't try to get out of Smyrna. He didn't try to get away from the persecution. In fact, he became, as John was the bishop, of Ephesus, this man uh, became the bishop of Smyrna. Became the bishop of Smyrna. He served as the bishop of Smyrna for 50 years. 
50 years. And then the Romans finally got fed up with him. They pursued him to a farm outside of Smyrna. They captured him. He was an old, old man. They brought him back and they put him in the stadium where the gladiators fought and the chariots raced. Stands were full of people. And they said to him, you can live if you'll renounce Christ. I'm sure there were a lot of reasons that he didn't renounce Christ, but I believe that one of them was chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. The one who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, you won't be harmed by the second death. Remain faithful even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. Uh, his name was Polycarp. This is a 17th century engraving by a na- man named uh, Gruber. His, his last words as they burned him at the stake, they stabbed him and then they burned him. His last words were 86 years. I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? You can either try to avoid suffering or you can serve Christ as his devoted disciple, but you can't do both. You can live the life you think you want by managing your days in ways that maximize your control and minimize pain, or you can live the life Jesus wants to give you by submitting to his agenda for your days in ways that maximize our experience of eternal life. Uh, this would be, I, this is the way I would sum it up. When life tears a hole in your heart, think about friendship with Christ now. Think about intimacy with him now. This is what Jesus is saying to Smyrna. I get it that you're suffering. This is drawing you closer to me, and I want you to think about heaven. I want you to think about heaven. Uh, heaven's going to be a rocking place, but one of the reasons it's going to be rocking is because Uh, obviously Jesus is going to be there. And I just think about friends of mine. I have a friend who lost a little girl as a little baby. And and, and I I do believe that he's going to meet her in heaven. And he might say something to her like, uh, my life, I thought my life ended when you died. Uh, I can't count the number of tears that I shed over you. I just have it pictured this way that somebody taps him on the shoulder to Lord Jesus and he says, I can. I got him right here in this bottle. All right? I get it. One of my favorite Christian writers, a lady by the name of Flannery O'Connor, she says, I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. And it's a crisis of faith when we suffer. And I just want to speak to those who say, you know what, Ed? I, uh, oh, I, I love it when people go, uh, suffering will make you grow. Okay, let's all get down on our knees and ask God to make us suffer. You don't have to ask God to make you suffer. This is a suffering-filled world. All you got to do is follow Christ. Satan and, his, and Jesus' enemies take care of the rest. But if you're going through something, that fairness, that whole thing, that this doesn't seem fair, I really believe that God wanted me to come preach this sermon 
so that you would understand that suffering is a window of opportunity to draw closer to Christ and know him in a way that you can never know him apart from that. It's not that we invite suffering. It's just that it's part of life, and we can do two things with it. We can be bitter and try to figure out what we did wrong or what somebody else did wrong, or we can just cling to Christ and say, all right, here we go. Here we go. So, Father, I want to come now and before your throne of grace, I picture your throne of grace as all of us here. All of us here are in prayer. And um, here's what I think is going on right now. I think that there are many people here who are suffering and going through really tough times. And what I feel they have said to me before your throne of grace, our Holy Father, our good God, with Jesus at your right hand, the safest place in the universe, the throne of grace, they've kind of pushed me up forward. And they've said, tell him something for us. So, Father, I'm praying and I'm speaking on behalf of those who are going through really tough times and have been moved by the, the words to the church at Smyrna. And I'm saying for them, all right, God, I get it. This is part of the deal, and I really do want to be close to you. Uh, the nearness of my God is good, and I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking you to open my eyes to whatever this suffering might open my eyes to. Uh, you've been good to me, and you're still my king. In Jesus' name, amen.